0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Dominique Christina. Dominique is a writer, performer, educator, and activist. She has over 10 years of experience as a licensed teacher with double master's degrees in education and English literature. Dominique holds four National Poetry Slam titles, including the 2011 National Poetry Slam Champion. She conducts performances and workshops for colleges and universities all over the country and is the author of the poetry collection, The Bones, The Breaking, The Balm. With Sounds True, Dominique has released a new book called This Is Woman's Work, calling forth your inner counsel of wise, brave, crazy, rebellious, loving, luminous selves. And in this episode of Insights at the Edge, Dominique and I spoke about the importance of what she calls a deliberate relationship with language. We talked about bravery, its many different forms, and how authoring ourselves as women requires what Dominique calls a stunning act of bravery. In our conversation, we were briefly introduced to the 20 archetypes that are explored in Mrs. Woman's work. Including the archetype of the ghost woman and the whisper woman. And finally, Dominique read to us from the final section of her new book, Because We Are So Many. Here's my conversation with Dominique Christina. Dominique, you begin This is Woman's Work, writing about how important it is for women to author. Themselves, So, to begin mm-hmm. with, what do you mean by this phrase, authoring ourselves?
1: Uh, it's a conversation about agency and ownership, and it's the kind of conversation that only becomes necessary when you are, when you have inherited a construct that is trying to keep you small or quiet, um, or is seeking to define you, um, where you inherit the interpretation of um, your own experience and the absence of your own handwriting, if that makes any sense. And and from where I stand, that is uh, the reality for most women. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it becomes important to sort of um, take back the narrative mm-hmm. and write it in our own handwriting.
0: Now, why do you think that is particularly important for women? And you could certainly say all of us, most people, men, women, sure. anyone. So, why focus on women in your work? Well, I,
1: I could I could go on and on about it, but let me let me just say this. Um, Women are, in my opinion, uh, the most supernatural forces on the planet. Uh-huh. Um, we are the light bearers and the waymakers and the creation stories. And so for me, there's something very urgent and very important and necessary about women um, having the full authorship of their experience. When you have something so seismic, being constantly squelched down, um, it becomes necessary for us to sort of unpack and demystify uh, what it means to be woman and begin to parse those things out for ourselves. You know? And what you end up with is the fact that we are vast, and complicated, and sometimes simple, and often deep, but all of those things are us, and we should not have to be you know, squeezed down into anyone else's idea of who we are.
0: Do you think there are certain cultural constraints or historical constraints that women have suffered under that you're particularly wanting to liberate Women from in your work that are important to you. Oh,
1: I mean, I, 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 guess I would have a conversation about patriarchy at some point, and and particularly um, the way that patriarchy is practiced um, in, in this country in the West, um, where I listen. I don't fundamentally. I don't have a problem. With the performance of that word, if we're just talking about the eldest male sort of um, guiding the family, right? But that's not the performance of that word. In my experience, my my cultural experience, my societal experience, my my national experience that's that's not the performance of that word. The performance of that word becomes one that is um, it's it, it comes. It's attached to a fist um, or a muzzle. Um, it's 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 relegating women to the margins. Um, it's quieting or silencing their voices. It's telling them and their daughters that they are not as valuable, not as good, not as powerful, not as necessary, and that is. Beyond wounding, it's just completely inaccurate, It's completely inaccurate. So I think there are many, many constraints that I'm sort of constantly buttressing up against. Um, As an American girl, as an African-American girl, um, uh, the inheritance of patriarchy as it has been performed in this society um, has been wounding
0: for me. I'm curious where you think we are at this point in history. Here, we're recording this conversation in 2015. We've obviously come a long way and still have a long way to go in liberating women's sense of, as you said, agency and ownership of their own narrative. Where do you think we are right now?
1: I think we're better than we were. Uh, that sort of sounds like a sound bite, but I, I, I think we're better than we were. What's available to me was not available to my grandmother. What was available to her was not available to her grandmother. So we, we're inching forward. Um, I have, you know, like I, I can occupy spaces now where the women in the room are not interrupted by the idea that they are powerful. In my, even my mother's generation, there were women in the room who would be interrupted by that idea, or at least that it would be said out loud or said by a woman or that, that, that there was some opportunity for them to practice out their own power? that people would have been, women would have been interrupted by that. So I think that that is perhaps evidence that we are inching forward. Um, but I have a daughter, and I don't want these conversations to be relevant to her. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I, got, yeah. I want us, I want us to have transcended this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I want her to inherit something different. I don't want her to have to fight as hard or scrap as often.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now we started out, Dominique, by talking about this idea of authoring ourselves, and you know that's it's really interesting word, the word author, and. You place a great deal of emphasis in the book, *This Is Woman's Work*, on language, and women owning the language for their lives. And I'd love to hear you talk a little okay. bit about that. Why you think it's so important? The words we use and the words we use to describe our own story.
1: Oh, I think it's for me. It's critical. Um, it it that particular conversation is one that that makes my blood move because. We think in pictures, and language creates that picture. So based on the language, our, depending on the language that I inherit, inherit from when I'm very small, um, the, that I inherit first in my, the, my family of origin, and then by extension, my community, my neighborhood, and then past that, the schools that I'm educated in, and the way that the teachers speak, and the kids in the school, and then the larger society, and media, and the language that's being used therein, I am inheriting not just the language, but the ideas that are attached to that language. Language has an agenda, and language is a culture keeper. So if I inherit a particular set of language that suggests to me that my options are limited, that my stretch, my reach is limited, that my capacity is limited. I, I have already, I'm, I am stuck in a particular place, and I can't even imagine myself as being something larger because I don't have the language that suggests it or that would allow for me to walk toward it. And so I think it's critical that we have those conversations, and it's particularly critical for marginalized people, and women have been historically and contemporarily marginalized. For me, the unpacking of certain words gets you to a particular place. When you have the word man with the original intent, simply meaning one who has a mind, Right. And we can track that because of old canonical works, the Bible and, and, and old text, where when they say man, that is not a gender conversation. That is a conversation about mankind, right? And so to have a word like that become there's there's a subcategory that gets created because if I'm going to subjugate you, I can't have you Relating to yourself or thinking about yourself in the same way that I do. So I have to create a subcategory that you adopt as a descriptor for yourself so that it's easy to conquer you. And that is a mechanism that we have always used. That is the one function of language, one unfortunate function of language. But what's beautiful about it is that you can always reclaim it and know it for yourself. And have a more deliberate, more intentional relationship with language. And so there are questions that I'm asked all the time that I just refuse to answer because, in so doing, I am making a concession to language that is intended to wound me.
0: Could you give me an example? I'm not going to do that. Could you give me an example of a question you wouldn't answer? I'm not going to ask such a question, I promise,
2: (laughs) but I'm just curious.
1: Um, there are conversations around that I have and this is I usually have this experience on college campuses um, and I even get what the person is driving at but fundamentally the, the question is is something around oh it's hard for me to so because I, I work so hard to not take the language out uh, it's it's, it's usually connected to needing me to explain why uh, violence against women or gender violence or violence against LGBTQ folk um, is a relevant conversation or why uh, it's something that, that should matter. Um, and I usually don't answer that question. And the reason why I don't answer that question is because, Those who have power um, or those who are in a protected class never have to. They never have to answer the question uh, why they are important or why their lives are important. Yeah. Right? Or why they should be kept safe. They never have to answer that question. No one's ever going to ask that question of them. Yeah. And so to ask, right? And so for me, it's just about... You know, you have to pay attention to the language that you're using. You have to pay attention to what it suggests. I'm not going to ever really in any way try to legitimize womanness for anyone because it's not okay for anyone to have that question. I would never try to legitimize um, being queer. It's not okay to have the question. So I'm not going to spend my time trying to explain that to someone because it's not okay for them to have that question. It's not okay for the question to be asked, you know?
0: Yeah, now I want to just point something out. One of the words you've used in the conversation we're having is the word conversation. And so it's interesting, (laughs) when I ask you a question, you say, well, that's an interesting conversation. And so what, what I'm noticing is that you approach a lot of the questions that you raise in This Is Woman's Work and in your teaching work as conversations, that in and of okay. itself is very interesting to me. I'd love for you to comment on that.
1: Uh, I, I think of conversation as... Um, I think it's intimate. I think it's open. I think it's available. Uh, conversation for me suggests that, that we are... Um, communal and, and with one another and um, with the world, if that makes me, the conversation is about, you know, in terms of, you know, like the, the etymology of that, that word is actually the act of living with, which I really love um, to live with or to keep company with. And so I love the idea that, that language offers family, you know what I mean? I mean, I think so often it's misuse does the, the opposite, right? Language creates enemies, creates division. But, but conversation, that word, is about the coming together, the being with, the living with, the, the understanding of, not necessarily the agreement with, but I make space for you. You make space for me. You know, we are deliberate enough in how we speak with each other that even though we may not agree, um, you are safe in the room. I'm safe in the room. My language is, is it can be fully heard and present and yours can too. You know. So I love that. I mm-hmm. love I love having conversation, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that's really a really beautiful thing to try. Yeah.
0: Okay, and I want to go a little bit deeper into what you said, you know, your blood starts boiling when we talk about the importance of how we language our stories. Mm-hmm. Because the first thing you said in response to me asking about that was how pictures in your experience right. come from language. And so I paused okay. there for a moment because I wanted to do a little internal experiment and see, do mm-hmm. pictures come from language or do I see pictures first and then mm-hmm. I language them? And so I'd love to hear more about how, in your experience, the pictures come from language.
2: So
1: we, when we learn language, typically, um, when we are very small, um, whatever adult is taking care of us will point to things. Uh, well, they will say the word usually first, you know, pick up your toys. And we stare blankly back at them because we don't know what that is. And then they point to the toy and they say, pick up your toys, pick up your toys. And then they mime that behavior. They pick up the thing that they're they're talking about. And in that moment, your brain now has the association. Every time that sonically, every time I hear that word toy, or pick up your toys, she is talking about these shiny things that I play with and she wants me to put them in my hand. And so language has the function of, and this is what I mean by having a deliberate relationship with language as opposed to a co-opted relationship with language. That, that example that I just gave is a co-opted experience of language. It's not deliberate. And there's no, you know, when you're young, that's the way that we usually learn it. But at some point, we have to stop teaching language that way and start teaching it another way. Because the way that we teach language often is, and the media does this as well, Um, there is an image that, uh, we have a word that is now, that conjures an image. Here's a very quick example for me. My entire life, and even though I know better, I can't fix it without moving a lot of furniture in my brain. My entire life, the word slave conjures up someone who looks something like me. It's some dark-skinned person toiling in a field against their will, it, you know, and, and that is the image it's, this, it's, it's always the same it's this dark skinned person in a field, slave dark skinned person working dark skinned person working against their will and then to grow up and do the etymology of that word and realize that that is not the original intent of that word at all not at all it doesn't look anything like me in terms of its original intent. I now have to have a conversation about the ways in which language has created pictures for me, and that when I string those pictures together, those pictures then become what I am calling reality. And I make an agreement with it. Um, That that is what I mean. When we think in pictures, when I say, um, you know, Tammy, picture, I want you to picture... A pink Cadillac on a black driveway you don't see a p i n k c a d i l l a c o right you see a pink car yeah on a black right, and so the language has given us the image, and the image when when sitting next to a lot of other images is what we say reality is it's what we agree to, what we concede to so if My inheritance of the word woman is someone who is beaten, battered, bruised, busted lips, um, stuck at home or um, without without opportunities, without agency, uh, unable to make her own decisions about whether or not she wants to have children or with whom she wants to partner, all these things, if that is the performance of that word, that's the inheritance of that word, for me, that's what it looks like, right? The implications are significant. And even now, there are a lot of words that I have, like the word slave, where I, I went back, you know, the reclamation of language for me yeah. showed me how I was misusing it and how it had been misused my whole life. But I tell you, there's still, even though I know better, when I hear certain words, the picture that first pops up in my head is the one that was created for me, and it's not accurate.
0: Yeah. And so I want to just connect the dots here. So when it comes to really having a sense of empowerment, let's just use that word for a moment, in our life sure, as women... Tell me how being very careful about our language and very conscious about our language in your experience links in with liberating our empowerment.
1: Well, because language is a culture keeper and because women in my opinion, are also um, keepers of the culture. We should absolutely have um, a very deliberate relationship with language. There's also a conversation for me around, again, demystifying um, certain words where we can begin to pick out and point out the ways in which agended language has lacerated us Mm
2: -hmm.
1: politically, philosophically, spiritually, emotionally, psychically. Um, And you can start to hear it. That's the thing. It's almost a thing I I have a hard time explaining to people. But once I started the business of of reclaiming language, I can hear stuff now that I couldn't hear before, I can hear sort of the daggers, the slings and arrows in a person's language and i'm I'm well armed. I can hear it mm-hmm. you know and again, we go back to the piece around that there are certain questions that I simply won't answer, and when I don't answer, the person is interrupted by that, and they'll usually say something like do, do you do you not understand what I mean? you know and then I get to say. No, I know exactly what you mean, but I don't think you know what you mean. Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. And then
1: we have a different conversation, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Yeah, I don't have to make a confession to to the language of another person. I certainly don't have to make a confession if that language is being misused or misapplied. And a lot of times people don't know that that's what they're doing. It's not that they're nefarious. Figures. It's just that they are having the experience that most of us have, and that we have inherited language, and a lot of it has not been used correctly, and a whole lot of it was intended to um, cause harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's a topic I care a lot about too. But we're going to move on. Sure. Uh, another okay. comment that you make in the beginning of This Is Woman's work, is that authoring ourselves, this is a quote, is a stunning act of bravery. And I want to talk a little bit about what bravery means to you, what bravery has asked of you, required of you.
1: Oh, shoot. You know, it sounds really, depending on the, the listener, it can sound very pedestrian, because Oftentimes for me, the things that required seismic bravery were things like saying who I was in a room,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, saying um, what, what I love, who I love,
2: mm-hmm.
1: how I love, you know, um, those things. We became mm-hmm.
2: Um
1: The the I think declarations are so important, and I'm, I'm fascinated by people who have never had um, the experience of really understanding the weight of it because they are never challenged or or, or questioned, or their legitimacy has never been. There's never been any question marks thrown around it, but just sometimes for us, the business of of saying who you are is tremendous, a tremendous act of bravery. Um, Sometimes it's the simplest things, right, that that end up being the most profound. Um, There are times where I have, we're all different, but I, for me, because I, uh, I come from such an intensely matriarchal family. There's a lot of modeling of strong women, right? I mean, I'm in no short supply. No short supply. Um, but one of the consequences of that, everybody is so mountain esque, right? That I didn't know how to. I didn't know how to not know something, and I didn't know how to be. I didn't know how to bleed out loud, and I didn't know how to to just be wounded and, you know, in full view, I I didn't know how to do those things because I didn't think you were supposed to do those things. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my mother is so um, zen and composed and inward. So inward, you know, I, I, I don't see her outsourced for anything. If she is angry, I don't know it. I don't know what it looks like in any observable way, you know? If she's sad, I can maybe catch it in the eyes, but this is someone who is so composed all the time. I thought that that's, that was the template of womanness, My grandmother too, my aunt too. Like they all function that way. And so bravery for me, particularly as it informed my performing, was my willingness to stand in a room and be that Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. that
1: was incredible it took all the courage I could muster to do that you know
2: Mm -hmm.
1: but I think I think in a larger in a larger sense I mean if we were having if we're just having a conversation about women I do think that um, you know patriarchy often tries to destroy in women what is required of us which is unimpeachable bravery.
2: Mm. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah.
1: And so, but again, that that bravery can truly just look like, you know, it can look like opening the curtains. It can look like walking outside in the sun and not putting your head down, you know. It can look like holding hands with someone in public. It, it, there's so many forms of that, right? And it just depends on who you are and what your lived experience is. But I do think for women, the business of authoring ourselves, naming ourselves, claiming ourselves is seismic and supernatural. We change the ecosystem when we do that.
0: I really yeah. believe that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. And your book, This is Woman's Work, approaches this conversation to use your word, about naming ourselves and owning our narrative through the right. introduction of 20 different, I guess you could call them archetypal faces or mm-hmm. archetypal expressions. You call them an inner council. So I'd love to mm-hmm. to understand a little bit about how you came up with these 20 archetypal faces and how this approach, even, of working with your own narrative came to you.
1: Oh, boy. Oh. <laughs> I, I really... Again, I have had the experience of seeing up close how vast, how expansive, how complicated, and how different we are as women. Um, and when I, when I started thinking about all of them, (laughs) I realized that they couldn't be more different from each other, but there is a common thread and I wanted to try to, to pull at it. I also wanted to demystify the conversation around, you have to pick this one way of showing up. Mm-hmm. And, and, and stay there, dig your heels in and stay there, and then that is some evidence of maturity. Um, I really wanted to, to get on the other side of that and demystify that, because for me, the more I started interrogating it, the more it felt like a lie. And so these archetypes really are women that I've experienced, the ones who raised me. Um, the, the, the ones who loved me, uh, the grandmother figures that lived in, on my block, um, the, the women who uh, could get their kids to school on time every morning, made home-cooked meals every night, and if you asked her what she was passionate about, she had no idea. Because she'd never been asked before. Her life was about service to other people. I've met a lot of those women. Um, or the one who is constantly fighting, constantly resisting, constantly rebelling, constantly, constantly buttressing up against any and everything. Because for her, the fight is the sound of her name. I've seen her. I've been her. So I I or the obedient woman who for her it's entirely about being strong enough to say, Yes, okay, I will do it over and over and over and over again. So I I really just wanted to honor the women that I've seen, the women that I've been, um, I've held a lot of those energy patterns. And then there are some I've never, ever been um, and don't know. I would have to practice really hard <laughs> at, 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 at trying it on. Um, I don't know, Tammy. I It was organic for me, truly. The, the Coming up with the archetypes was more about, I almost felt like I was in my brain uh, flipping through this, photo album, you know, of all the women that I've encountered and seen and known and share blood and bone with and, and, and who's taught me, um, whose stories informed my existence and, and wanted to honor them all, you know, this is what it looks like if she's in balance and this is what it looks like if she's out of balance but to try to hold a space for each way of being and say it is legitimate. If she can grow from there, then she should grow from there. I don't know if I answered your
0: question. You did. I want to go a little bit more into it. You know, I want to also just give our listeners a sense of the 20 different archetypes that you name. Sure. You have the warrior woman, the rebel woman, the willing woman, the woman with cool hands— the violated woman, the howling woman, the bone woman, the beggar woman—so all, all all of these different expressions. And, and I'm curious to know: is your view that we all have this archetypal energy inside of us, each one of these twenty, that we all have that inside of us, or or no? This is you know I, we see this outside of us, but it might not live within us. Or how do you see that?
1: i think i i don't know that i would posit that we ha we all have each one um but each one is available to us Do, does that make sense
2: we'll um, say, say more say I more
1: don't have okay so like i'm not i am not the i'm not the willing woman at all okay i mean i'm not i i'm i'm really not she i struggle with her uh, the the one who sort of uh, operates from obedience. I don't, I really struggle with her. I believe you. And so, uh, so I uh, I can't say that I'm in possession of that archetypal energy, but I have come in contact with her in moments in my life where obedience, um, for lack of a, a better word, where obedience was the most powerful thing I could do. You know, you find obedience, I find obedience even in the writing and that was what was coming for me in, in, in sort of trying to interrogate her and unpack her is how obedient I am in the writing because I just sit and wait for the words to come and trust them, you know? But I'm practicing the kind of stillness and obedience that the willing woman has in space. And so while I don't function from her primarily, she is available to me. Now, if she's she's not in balance, then she's a woman who, when she should talk back or speak out, she does not. When she should fight back, she does not. When she should say no, she will not. That is someone who is out of balance. But the person who is willing to submit that's powerful um, and I needed to to engage that and in engaging her I had to then make I had to then reckon with the fact that we are all so vast and so expansive that these things are completely available to us you can stand in one place on Monday and in another place on Tuesday and move through them fluidly and it's not conflict it's not shouldn't create tension it's you shouldn't it's not a contradiction it's not evidence of you being unevolved or immature it is it is in fact evidence of you holding all of your parts sacred and leaving the door cracked open for some other thing to come into because this is not an exhaustive list this is my list because this is these are things i've interacted with but we're so vast that it could keep going, right? Just in our conversation, you named an archetypal energy of <laughs> the void woman, right? So there's more.
0: Yeah, there's that was something care. you and I were talking about before we started our recorded conversation when we were just right. chatting on the phone first. And you were talking about how you're spending a period of time right now, a little over a week, by yourself without your four children. And right. here this archetype emerged. What, what's it like to be the Void Woman, so that's interesting. That even though you name twenty of them in the book, new archetypal faces, if you will, could Show appear. Up. Yeah, or <laughs> we or we could see in other people. Yeah, that's right. Now, a couple of these archetypes were very moving to me and challenging, and I, I want to bring a couple of those up. Sure. One one was the Ghost Woman. Tell us about the Ghost okay. Woman.
1: Ah. So I think it's really, I think it's so interesting that you were you were challenged by the ghost woman um, because I don't think it's interesting because uh, God I I have met her so many times um, and I I'd like to interrogate why that is but but, but for for these purposes let me just say this um, when I was a little girl. I always felt like um, there were women in my family who were sort of burdened with burdened with memory. Um, mm-hmm. Who and 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 long memory. Um, I'm trying really hard to be succinct here. Um, I. I think that there is such a thing as borrowed memory. Now, that probably um, will be confronting for some people, depending on where they line up, but um, it, for me, that has been my experience in terms of the, the, the women in my family, um, where they come here, not just with their own experiences, but with sort of the, the borrowed experiences of other people that are sort of clinging to them. Um, and the ghost woman is complicated because she is burdened with it. She is burdened with memory. Um, it is... Uh, hers is a skeletal, you know, like we... That, you know, the phrase when we talk about... You know, the skeletons in the closet. Well, for me, um, the ghost woman, she doesn't have the luxury of experiencing them in the closet. You know, they're, they're with her. They're there all the time. Um, it's very difficult for her to um, to, keep it, to keep the past where it belongs very hard for her to do that. Very hard for her to do that. She doesn't know... She doesn't know how. She doesn't know how. Does that make sense? Maybe tell me why it was challenging for you.
0: Oh, I think I just had this strange feeling starting with the name The Ghost Woman, of feeling kind of Mm -hmm. haunted by holding on to things from the past.
1: Mm -hmm. My... My grandmother reminds me, she, I thought about her almost the entire time that I was writing. My grandmother uh, was this Native American woman who grew up in the segregated South, but of course the segregated South had these very strict lines, right? Things were black or white and she was neither. And she grew up poor. And and she was erased from the conversation. No one was thinking about her. No one was talking about her or her people or, or their reality. So she, by the time she moved to Denver, um, you know, a, a significant amount of trauma that happened in the South and she came to Denver and Denver was like, it sort of suggested liberation and a new start and a clean slate and all of that. But she could not let any of her experiences go. And I mean, not one, there could have been a, uh, It could be something small and minute, like a fight, an argument in the car with my grandfather that held no weight for him. And it happened in the 30s, but she might bring it up one day. She couldn't let it go. She couldn't let go of her childhood. She couldn't let go of the adults that she encountered in her childhood. She couldn't let go of any personal hurt or any historical hurt. She couldn't let it go. The past occupied her life. It took up all the breathable air. And, and I think it, it contributed to why my grandmother ultimately got sick. It, it was like she left no room,
2: mm-hmm.
1: no room for tomorrow, for the possibility of a day that was not so plagued with ghosts. She couldn't do it. She couldn't figure out how to do it,
2: mm-hmm. you know.
1: I think, I think for me it serves as a, a painful reminder, but a necessary reminder because I'm the person who tries really hard to learn from her experiences. And oftentimes, um, the ones that were the hardest taught me the most and strengthened me the most, but there is something I, I there's something a bit problematic about hanging on to the things that have wounded you. So there's a slippery slope for me in in like receiving the information, learning the lesson but not holding on to the hurt.
0: Yeah. Not yeah.
1: keeping it around. Yeah.
0: So is it fair to say Dominique that these 20 different archetypes and going into them and really considering each one, that Mm -hmm. how this helps women and why you call it a woman's work is Mm -hmm. that we're starting to discover those aspects of our own story that might be in darkness that we're Mm -hmm. willing to engage with and then we can generate more awareness about how these different archetypes might actually have something to say about our lives. Something like that? Yes.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly that. Exactly that. Exactly that. You know, we. I, I imagined that all of these women, you know, each woman, uh, the shadow woman, the, the, the howling woman, the, the woman with cooler hands, the womb woman, that they were all in a circle and that I was in the center and I got to ask whatever question I wanted.
2: Uh You know,
1: that's what, that's where that inner council piece comes from, you know, that I can pull from these women, these different archetypal energies and let them teach me something, show me something, reveal something, help me heal from something. That's what it's, that's what it felt like to me, this council of women who could speak from a particular place and introduce me to myself. You know? My wider, larger, bigger self.
0: Okay. Now one of the other archetypes that I'd love you to talk more about because I also found myself I go for the ones that trouble me, not the ones that I sort of sure, know yeah, and understand, yeah, like but the the ones that are haunting me in some way. The whisper woman. Tell me about her. Oh the whisper woman.
1: She was hard for me too. Um and I think she was hard for me because um I, you know, I, it's very difficult. I'm trying to make sure I'm I'm doing again here with the language. Um because you did pick one that was hard for me. (laughs) Um, Well, let me, let me, let me say this. Um, There are moments for me where I, um, I have to engage certain experiences that, that, um that, that were were painful for me and that did not did not assist me in that in that moment in being a whole person um and when I was thinking about the whisper woman she came to me because um she's not easy she she's just She's not easy. She she uh, she doesn't know how to. She doesn't know how to be any one thing because she is something that we construct when we are in need of protection. Uh, there, there's a lot of ways to think about her. You know. In Jungian psychology, right, when he talks about the shadow, right, like the unblessed, repressed parts of who we are and all that. Well, one of the things that came up for me in thinking about Jungian psychology is that, in fact, oftentimes we create something that stands between us and the hurt. Uh Uh-huh. Something, the, uh, the the unsurvivable thing, we create something to manage it for us. So yeah. it's, like, it's almost like a risk manager. Yeah. Right? Yep. And so she, she is formless until you create her. But she is born out of necessity. And that's the part of her that I think needs to be honored and needs to be understood. She is here because we asked her to come. You know, she's not here by accident, but she is here because we needed her. And we need her if we are unsafe, unprotected, in crisis, in pain, or whatever. I, I it, The reason why I, I sort of stumbled at the beginning of explaining her is because she exists in my life as a way to keep me safe from certain unsurvivable experiences. A quick example. Um, When I was in middle school, um, one of the rituals that we had – I went to private school. One of the rituals that we had was on a half day, we would walk uh in Denver to the this very busy intersection, Colfax and Glencoe, where there were a number of fast food restaurants and all of that. and on this particular half day, um, a girl that I knew and went to school with who was walking just in front of my friends and I was hit by a car mm. in front of me mm. um, and died right there. now, I this is what the whisper woman did for me in that moment. She didn't just erase this girl's death. She erased her life. Hmm. She completely erased. I had, it was like this little girl was never in my life. I couldn't just get rid of how she died. I had to, she had to leave completely. And then when I'm an adult, And I have more tools in my toolbox now. Walking with students on a half day, my student was hit by a car. She survived in front of me. But what I saw was the little girl who died in front of me. All of a sudden, there she was. The risk manager sort of stepped aside or the whisper woman stepped aside and was like, I think you probably can mess with this now. I think you probably can reckon with this now. you couldn't when you were 12. Yeah. So I protected you, but you can now that's the function of, of the, the whisper woman. She came to me a lot in the writing of the book. When I had to write the chapter, the violated woman, the whisper woman was a hit in my ear the entire time. Are you sure? Are you sure you want to say that? Are you sure you want to share that? Are you sure you want people to know that? It was constant, constant, you know? So once you create her, and again, she's born out of necessity. Once you create her, one of the things in my experience of her is that she is, she is functioning to keep me safe from experiences that might hurt me. She is functioning to keep me safe from memory, but she's not always good at determining when I might be ready to reckon with some of those things because her whole function is to stand in between me and the hurt. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So it's a a hard one for me. I, I, it really is. But I, I honor her. And, and in the writing of it, every time she was sort of a hiss in my ear saying, are you sure? Are you sure? You know, I honored her. Thank you. Thank you for protecting me. I am sure. Thank you for protecting me, but I am ready. I am ready.
0: Now, Dominique, I want to go back to this image you offered of these 20 different archetypes standing in a circle, and you're in the center in some sense, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they're all informing you, and you're having a conversation with each one, and mm-hmm. they're, they're Educating you, if you will, or you're growing into this process that you described as agency and ownership of your own story. Tell me about that one in the center. Who is she?
1: Mm-hmm. She's the every woman, I think. I think she is. I, I think the every woman is the one who, standing in the center of that circle, looks out and sees her own face in each individual. She sees her own face. She sees all the things that she's been and is being, all the spaces that she occupies and can occupy. Um, she's the one that is, to me, sort of the grandmother uh, of, of each woman saying, I have been you or I can be you. You are legitimate, you know. Um, I think that's one way of thinking about it. The every woman is the one in the center. The other way of thinking about it is that it is for the reader. The reader is in the center. And this grand council of women is available to the reader Uh to ask questions of and to interrogate and to... Sit with and listen to her stories and listen to her narrative and see if she can find herself in that woman's experience, in that woman's story, or if at the very least she can hold a space for that woman. If she can acknowledge that she, that, that woman, that particular archetypal energy is her familiar, even if she is challenging. She can still be your
0: familiar
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know? mm-hmm. yeah
0: to end our conversation dominique I, I would love it if you're willing to ask you to read something from the final section of the book a section that you call because we are so many i want people okay. to actually get a sense of your writing because mm-hmm. it's So powerful, to use the word you used, seismic. That was my experience in reading Mm -hmm. it. And uh, yeah, so could you read to us from the final section of the book?
2: Sure.
1: I found so much of myself in writing this. I've had to travel through so many versions of me to make it true. It has been both dizzying and exhilarating. I was perpetually surprised by what was coming out of me. I was perpetually healed by what was coming out of me. This was an experiment in naming my own insides. When I write, I'm calling on all of these things. I'm trying to have precedence over my conditioning. I'm trying to say what is underneath. It is a deep thing to move in the world as a writer. It is a deep thing to move in the world, period, when I did not know I was a writer, when I did not believe in the music of my own voice, it was a life of blue note melody, a refrain to which I did not know the words, there was no space to dance, to sing, to discover. And I'm no expert on how to exhume the words. I had to put my hands in it my own way. I had to feel the dissatisfaction of my unrecited life. I had to become a part of the living. The creative process is where I lose my attachment to the illusions of who I am and step into the reality of who I am. It is the one place in my life where I am the most myself, no concealment, No containment, no overemphasis, just me engaging myself. The wild I find in my spirit is a kind of self-remembering. Creation is a meditation. It's an offering. It's something cosmic, something permanent. I had ancestors whose voices were squelched and stolen. That I can speak and be fully expressed holds so much weight. The women, the women who were nameless, the ones who were pinned down, the ones who were pushed through, those women have breath and breath here. I write to remind myself of those things. I write because it is given to me. Speak, I write to dance on the edge of the world, a smokestack, a deep well, a good rumble, a praise shout. I write to praise this body and the way I woke up this morning, to praise the song I sang in the shower, to praise the miracle I am and the mess I've been, to praise the language for being my familiar, to praise the woman whose skin I burst through, to praise the grandparents I had, the children I have, the people in my life who are supernatural in their affection and their commitment, to praise the girl I was, the one who kept too much empty, the one who looked up one day and fell in love with herself. So praise the forgetting of fear and the becoming and the journey and the fight and the wherewithal and the fleshier, wider parts of tomorrow. Praise the right now, amen, that is today, and the riding of wind without asking
2: permission.
0: I've been speaking with Dominique Christina. She is the author of a powerful, beautifully languaged new book called This is Woman's Work, calling forth your inner counsel of wise, brave, crazy, rebellious, loving, luminous selves. A provocative book, one that engages, I think, and engaged me in inner work just to read it. Dominique, thank you so much. Thank you for your bravery. Thank you for your voice. Thank you thank for you. creating such a beautiful book. This is Woman's Work. Thank you so much. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.